Welcome to the Art of Masculinity Podcast. I am your host, Johnny L. Sasser. As a former Special Operations U.S. Army Ranger out of 2nd Ranger Battalion and a former Protective Security Specialist who protected the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, I spent 10 years in and out of the Middle East. My mission today is to help men everywhere find the courage to be confident in themselves and their masculinity, regardless of what society says or what preconceived notions are out there in the media. I'm here to shed a light on those tough, strong alpha males opening up not only to those they love, but to the world about who they really are and how they own these open and vulnerable parts of themselves. Today, my goal is to help be a light for men who are struggling in owning their masculinity and struggling to present it in a way that is authentic to them. I'm grateful for having you here and sharing your time with me. Let's dive into the episode and I'll see you around the corner. everyone. Welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. Today's guest is Dr. John Schinnerer. He coaches clients to perform at their peak from the boardroom to the bedroom. Dr. John graduated from UC Berkeley with a PhD in educational psychology. Dr. John was one of the three experts to consult with Pixar on the Academy Award-winning movie Inside Out. He has spoken to organizations such as Stanford Medical School, UC Berkeley, Kaiser Permanente, Sutter Health, Yahoo, AT&T, and The Gap. He has been featured in national media such as U.S. News and World Report, Reader's Digest, and Self Magazine. He is a nationally recognized speaker and award-winning author. He has been on stage or on air with Lieutenant Governor John Garamendi, Olympic medalist Paul Kingsman, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dan Millman, Dr. Fred Luskin from Stanford, and Dr. Jonathan Haight from University of Virginia. He has impacted individuals at companies such as Okta, Twilio, Indeed, Ask Jeeves, Visa, Cisco, Starbucks, Yahoo, FedEx, Stanford, Cal, UPS, Schreiber Foods, Kaiser Permanente, and Sutter Health. He was featured in a documentary entitled Skewed by Paula Bosala on the effects of violence in the media. He wrote the award-winning book, How Can I Be Happy? His area of expertise ranges from high performance to stress management to positive psychology to anger management to creating happy, thriving relationships. Over 10,000 people have taken his online anger management course. He recently recorded micro courses on anger management and forgiveness for simple habit. They have been listened to over 60,000 times in the first four months. Dr. John hosts the amazing podcast, which I had the opportunity to be a part of, called The Evolved Caveman, where he helps men evolve towards greater success, happiness, and connection. He also has a guide to self at guidetoself.com. To learn more about Dr. John, you can also follow him at The Evolved Caveman on Instagram. Guys, this is a very, very fun episode. And as you can tell, his accolades run deep and long. So Dr. John was just a blast to have on the show, but we dive into a lot of the emotions that men struggle with today from a couple different perspectives from psychology to the reality of what we experience and how we share this to the world. So 
I will let you guys take a listen to mine and Dr. John's conversation, and I'll see you guys around the corner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. Today we have Dr. John Schinner on and super excited. He's also the host of an amazing podcast called The Evolved Caveman and very excited to dive in with you today, brother. How are you doing? Good. How about you, Johnny? I'm psyched to be here. Oh, doing well. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while and we just were not able to line up at the end of last year, but here we are. 2022, able to rock it out. And grateful for it. Absolutely. So the first thing I always do with my guests is we start off with the manly round so the community can get to know you a little bit. You ready for it? Ready. I think. (laughs) All right, brother. What is your spirit animal and why? Uh, Wolf, tough and intelligent pack animal. Mm. I love that you just said pack animal, by the way, because we as men get taught the lone wolf is the way we're supposed the lone to be. Wolf, yeah. That's not real. <laughs> I am a rock. I'm an island unto myself. No, I know. I think that we need people. We need relationships. It's a big part of happiness. Absolutely, brother. Oh, I love it. All right. What song, whenever you hear it, do you, no matter where you are, do you absolutely just have to start singing along with? Oh boy, there's a bunch. Um, American Pie comes to mind. Oh, oh yes, it's, a good it's one. one of my favorites. Lasted a I long think so time. Many pe- I'm pretty sure most people, when they hear that song, have to start singing along with it. I don't know how you don't. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, all right, if you were a DJ, what would your DJ name be? The Evolved Caveman. real real original there dr john i don't know man (laughs) dj caveman dj i like that one dj 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 troglodyte Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a good one Uh, all right what is something that no matter who does it on the planet what is an action that even if the coolest person did it, they would look absolutely ridiculous doing it. Smoking cigarettes comes to mind, but I'm not sure that's really true because some people can make that look good. I just, it's kind of a disgust reaction in my mind. Um, Wear a banana hammock and goggles to high school to pick up their teenager. (laughs) Hard to look cool doing that. Hard to, but I'm a big would fan be of embarrassing hilarious. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I really like to play around with embarrassment, which you know my family doesn't always appreciate. Oh, I love that. That's a really good one. All right, what your last one is? If you could pull a prank, so you just admitted you like to embarrass people, so I'm interested to hear what you have. If you could pull a prank on any well-known person in the world, dead or alive. Who would the prank be on? And if you know of a prank, what would it be? Boy. Um, I remember when I was younger, we, I, so I grew up swimming and we showed up for morning practice at the high school swim pool. And it was weird because there was a car in the deep end of the pool. 
And so we got to dive down there and swim down and see if there was anyone like in the car. It was also cool because practice got canceled that day. So that was awesome. But I, I think that's a pretty good prank. Um, but I would put a, a mannequin in the car as well, just to freak somebody out. Oh, that's That'd be so kind of good. Fun. Now on, who is it on? I don't know. Uh, I don't know the coach. But that comes to mind. <laughs> and we found out oh, later some I high love that. That's actually a really good thing. Um, oh my God. Like, wow, you, you just dumped a car in the pool. Like that's crazy. That That is nuts. Yeah, that's nuts, man. Could you imagine calling your insurance company? <laughs> when whose car was it? You know, that's that was <laughs> one of the questions I had. Like, did they steal this car? Like, did they borrow it? Like, is this dad's car? I don't know. Oh my God. That's so good. Well, you did well, brother. I am proud of you. You, you knocked a oh, home run out of the uh, manly round. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pressure. All right. I know. Right. Um, no, but you know, the community got to get to know you a little bit from the intro and you have so many feathers in your cap from being, you know, published in magazines and journals, and then also being on numerous, uh, you know, television pieces and all of these other things. You have award-winning books. Like, I mean, you have so much to your name, but who is Dr. John? Like what started this progression for you to even get into this field? Number one, behind really a lot of like emotional intelligence work, but also even working with men. Well, I, thanks for asking. I mean, I think that back in high school, I was doing what all the people around me, all the adults, my parents told me I needed to do to be quote successful, right? Which basically I came to conclude it just means trying to go for money or power. And I remember being like 17, I was a senior in high school and I was killing it from the outside. I mean, I was captain of three varsity teams. I was taking advanced classes. I was student body president. And it, it really made me pause and think, okay, why am I doing this? Because I know it looks good to other people, but my experience was I was depressed some of the time. I was anxious a lot of the time. I was stressed. I was exhausted most of the time. And I was miserable. And I'm like, is this what the future holds? Like, I'm not really feeling this. Like, where is there room in this idea of success for things like happiness or relaxation or contentment? And, you know, I was 17. I didn't really have any answers at that time. I just had questions. But it, you know, worked. I got into a good college. And from there, I went in. And, you know, I had some experiences along the way that kind of steered me towards psychology. Um, you know, friends with like I had a friend with a father who committed suicide and he came back to school days after the suicide. And, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of started me questioning some things. And then I, I got into a PhD program at Cal in psych. And, you know, I, I really wanted to get into psychology largely to look at emotion. I, I consider myself an emotion geek um, mm -hmm. because I knew that the dumbest, most embarrassing, most shameful shit I've done in my life was all when my emotional mind was in charge of me. It's not when I'm calm, cool, and collected. Um, and so I was like, what are these emotions and how the hell do I get a handle on them? And, you know, I, I got into Cal. Cal was more about cognitive psychology, but, you know, experienced my first panic attack when I was at the new student orientation because my class at Cal was all of five people. That was my entire class. Mm. So there's no place to hide. What? And, 
I, I, I majored in philosophy in undergrad, so I didn't know a whole lot about psychology. And here I am with all these people that, you know, had at least an undergrad degree in psychology, if not a master's from like Harvard or Yale in psych. And I'm just like, oh my God, like they're talking a language I don't even understand, you know, citing researchers. Mm. And I'm like, who are these people? And I remember I got into a conversation with a seventh year student, which means he'd been in a PhD program at Cal for seven years. And I'm wow. like, the only thing I could think to say was, so what's your dissertation on? And he starts explaining it. And after about eight words out of his mouth, I had no idea what he was saying. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I think those thoughts started coming in of, you know, you're not worthy. You don't belong here. You're not smart enough. Get the hell out of here. And then, you know, started perspiring, started feeling someone, you know, was choking me, my, you know, tightness in the chest. And I didn't even know what was happening. But later I was like, oh, so that's a panic attack. Um, mm. But then, you know, if, if you fast forward, I got into private practice and I, I wanted to do positive psychology initially, which is the scientific study of happiness, well-being, meaning, purpose, that kind of thing. But back in 2005, it was kind of met with a lukewarm response. Or maybe I just sucked at marketing. Could be both. Um, <laughs> and so, so I... I a psychiatrist friend of mine said, well, why don't you do anger management? We need someone to do anger. I was like, yeah, sure. We can, I can do that. Like I'll combine the two. And I started seeing, and, and that kind of started me seeing mostly men, although angry uh, women are equally as angry just out of, you know, point of point of, I don't know, as a point on the side, but um, hey. start seeing men for anger management and that was great for about 10 years. I, I kind of got tired of it after a while because a lot of times people are like, you know, screw you. I don't want to be here. I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say, which, you know, doesn't lead to great results always. Um, yeah. And so I started getting into like executives and businessmen and doing more coaching work and realized pretty quickly that in my opinion, the biggest source of their pain was at home with their spouse. So I was like, mm. okay, well, let me start teaching them relationship skills because they seem to have the relationship skills and the communication skills at work, but they weren't bringing them home, which is interesting. Um, and that led to more recent work in masculinity, which led to this more recent work in man box culture, which is all about how we're socialized as men at a young age and the impact that it has on us and our relationships and pretty much everything else later on. Mm. So that's kind of, that's the story of, my evolution and i'm continuing ah, to evolve no. done unfortunately as the as the evolved caveman <laughs> yeah I, I someone someone said yeah you oh the evolving caveman i was like oh yeah just missed like much better title, but anyway uh, learn. that's all right the, well, one of the things that I, uh, I I liked a few things out of your story that I want to really highlight and I want to have you elaborate on because I think they can really help men today is, you know, you found out pretty early on in, in your journey that the worst things happen when you kind of allowed your emotions to take hold without having any kind of recognition of what they were, how they were impacting you, what they were driving you to do and what was the consequence of that. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that going on with men today and maybe even some tools that you have for men to remove themselves or acknowledge those emotions and step back. Yeah, I think, you know, if one of the highlights of my career was getting to 
consult with Pixar and Inside Out. So I got to consult with them about anger. And Great movie. one of the things they got right in that movie, because a lot of it's based on neuroscience, those guys do foundational research like nobody I've ever seen. And one wow. of the truths from neuroscience is that we seem to have primary or signature emotions, a signature emotion. And so I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, huh? So if you, if you think of Inside Out, for those of you that remember the movie, it's, you know, they go into the mind of a person and there's like a control panel and then there's five emotions sitting at the control panel and different people have a different emotion at the helm of that control panel. So for Riley, the 13 year old girl, it was joy. She goes through puberty. Then it's kind of joy, sadness. It all gets kind of mixed up. For the mom, the emotion at the head of that control panel was sadness. For the dad, it was anger. For the cat, nobody was at the control panel, which is kind of funny. But, um, <laughs> you know, and, and there's, there's truth to that. And so if I look back in my life, and, and this is a theory, I, I can't prove this, but I think it, there's truth to it. If I look back in my life, I've had to deal with each of the major negative emotions at different phases of my life. So I think when I was younger, I had to deal with sadness slash depression. Then it became anxiety slash fear. Then it was anger slash irritability. And I think that that's the developmental progress that we have to go through to get comfortable with each of those major emotions so that we can get to something like happiness or contentment, at least more of the time. Mm. So I, that's the, the progress that I see a lot of men get stuck in and a lot, most men get stuck in anger and that's their signature emotion. And, and the problem with anger that, I mean, anger at this point in my career fascinates the hell out of me because there's certain dynamics of anger that just do not serve us, but in the mm. moment they're addictive, they're empowering, they're, it's energizing and it makes us feel like we know everything. So if you and I are in a, in a mm. knockdown, drag out ar argument, disagreement, and I'm really angry at you, all I'm doing is externalizing blame onto you. All I'm doing mm. is looking for you to say, wow, John, I don't know what I was thinking. You are so right. I am so sorry. And that's rarely going to happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we stay stuck in our anger now, and again, think of anger on a one to 10 scale of intensity. So it could be anything from, you know, well, one is calm, five is angry, 10 is incredible Hulk enraged, you know, definitely when you get past a five on that scale, to some extent you become anger and the rational part of you just kind of goes away. Uh. The thinking side of you, the logical side of you. And then if you're at, you know, those lower levels, like two, three, four, that's kind of like, you know, somewhat annoyed, somewhat frustrated, um, somewhat disappointed. But even at those levels, anger is affecting your thinking and forcing you to think in more black and white, all or nothing terms, which I think is a lot of what we're seeing in, well, the United States today. And mm -hmm. so then the question becomes, you know, what's underneath the anger? And I've seen a bunch of different emotions that can flip and it's about a third of a second that you got. So you got to be, you have to kind of become aware and practice some of this a little bit, but I've seen embarrassment flip to anger. I've seen anxiety. I've seen depression. We know comes out as irritability in men. Um, I've seen, so sadness can um, guilt, shame. And so most of those emotions get channeled or funneled into that anger lens and it affects how we're thinking. And we don't have the self-awareness to realize, hey, I'm a, I'm a little bit annoyed here, or I'm a little bit frustrated, or I'm really fucking angry. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think Tasha Yurik has done some pretty interesting research where she found that over 90% of us will tell you that we're self-aware. And by her research, it's only about 13 to 14%. That's wow. a huge problem. Yeah. And, and I really, I mean, I believe that. I think that we're automatons. I think that we're creatures of habit. I think that it's easy for us to go mindless. I think it's easy for mm -hmm. our mind to wander. Um, and one of the big things that we need to work on, in my opinion, is greater self-awareness. And then you can work on greater mm -hmm. self-acceptance. But if you're not mm -hmm. even aware of who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and what you're feeling, we got a problem. And then we men are not yeah. socialized to even be curious or dip a toe in that water of what we're feeling. So we don't even go there. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many men I've talked to. They're like, well, if I scratch that scab, that emotional scab, I'm afraid it's going to start bleeding and it's never going to stop. So I'm not even going to yeah. look at the scab. Yeah. And do you find like one of the things that you said that actually hit home for me, because I think that I can look back into my life um, and I know where it switches to anger is embarrassment for men. If a guy gets embarrassed, right? Like that, that's a huge trigger for anger. Yeah. What, uh, when we go down this path of kind of let's centralize around anger for, uh, you know, a longer bit here, but when we go down this path of anger, what's a technique that you can give guys, or maybe a couple different tools you can give guys that helps them to become aware of that emotion and to, to maybe move past it or maybe just acknowledge it? Like what's your technique okay. that you have for it? So I, I think, you know, the first step is self-awareness. So it's getting your attention out of your head and into your body and, and paying mm -hmm. attention to like, what's my heart rate doing? And I'm sure you're quite good at this from special ops training, but you know, it's, what's my breathing doing? What's my heart rate doing? Where's the muscle tension in my body? Um, am I over-focusing mm -hmm. on negative thoughts? And, you know, anger is an evolutionary action script is preparing us to attack. And one of the things it does is it shunts blood to our fists and our feet to prepare us to attack. Now, attacking is not always the best option, but I, I think that one of the things I'll tell clients is I want you to focus on when you get anger, when you get angry, look back at when you've gotten angry, see what you can figure out as your top tell. What's the first thing you notice that tells you you're starting to get annoyed? or frustrated or mm. irritated. Like, I want you to be so in touch with your body that you can identify this at a two, three, or four level on that intensity scale. You can't wait till you're at a six or seven, that's too late. And so once you become aware, oh shit, I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed here, then you can do things to interrupt that anger cycle. So at first we know that, you know, there's kind of stimulus and response and, you know, freedom is in kind of the gap between because that's where you can make choices and you can extend that gap with more practice. So at first it's just a third of a second that, you know, you feel angry, mm. anger takes over, you're doing something stupid, you're punching the guy in the face. But with practice, you can extend that third of a second to a second, five seconds, 60 seconds. And then you're, then you're humming along because then you can go, oh, okay, I'm starting to get annoyed. Why, what's going on? You can ask yourself questions, what's, what's underneath my anger? Did someone hurt my feelings? That's, you know, for me, it's like 90% of the time someone hurt my feelings. And so I can speak to that. And it's a much different conversation. If I say to my fiance, you know, damn it, honey, why are you always, if I come at her in anger versus, hey, honey, you know, when you said that the other day about fill in the blank, it really kind of hurt my feelings. 
Like that's a two completely different conversations. And what we typically do is we get angry without any awareness. And so, you know, the other things you can do is tell you, like coach yourself in your own head, like, okay, I'm starting to get angry. Let me take a deep breath or you can excuse yourself from the situation. Um, but, you know, with practice, then you also look at what are the automatic interpretations that you're making that are making you mad? You can also look at, is this a universal anger trigger? And that's what's ticking me off right now. For example, um, I was talking to a client the other day about road rage. And we know there's 10 <laughs> universal anger triggers. Well, and, and so road rage is the biggest one we see. Like that's where we see it the most frequently and, and kind of the most intense, right? And there's a reason yeah. for that. So a couple of those universal anger triggers are someone coming at you, someone attacking you personally, right? Someone attacking your family. And it could be physical or verbal, mm. right? Um, there's a boundary issue where let's say you've got a house and your neighbor has an apple tree. There's a white picket fence just to paint the picture. And his <laughs> apple tree is mother, he's dropping apples on my property. And I've actually seen that lead to a shooting. What? So, you know, it, it builds over the years. There's more and more resentment, more and more anger. And then, you know, eventually someone gets shot in the face. But that's an example <laughs> of someone's stuff infringing on boundaries. And, mm. and when we drive, there's an imaginary boundary around our car, say, you know, four to five feet away from your bumpers, away from the outside of your car, right? And what else? Okay, and another universal anger trigger is bureaucracy or being stopped. Paul Ekman, <laughs> one of the leading emotion researchers in the world says, if you wanna see real anger, put a toddler's toy on the other side of the room and hold the toddler back from the toy, that toddler will get very, very cheesed, very angry. Oh. And so now understand that these universal anger triggers can stack and they're cumulative. Mm. So now put yourself in the car and let's say you've got your wife and your kid in the car with you and some guy cuts you off going 80 in the fast lane and he's too close to your front mm. bumper. So that's the universal anger trigger of someone coming at you, someone coming at your family, danger to your family. It's a boundary violation. So all of a sudden you've got three anger triggers stacked and you're blowing your lid and flipping them off and chasing him. And, and then the other one that's kind of in there often, at least where I live is getting stopped in traffic. We don't like to be stopped. Yeah. I, I had a client that was walking on the streets in Italy. It was really crowded. There was like an older group in front of him. He got so lit because he couldn't walk at the speed he wanted to. What? <laughs> and, and so I, I think, you know, one of the things here is to understand that our anger is our business. My anger is my business, my problem. It's nobody else's problem. Mm. No one can help me deal with it. I got to figure it out on my own. Because if you're getting really pissed and I come up to you and I'm like, hey, Johnny, dude, like, just relax, take a deep breath, chill. Odds are you'll probably get more pissed. Most yep. people that does not help. And so really it, it relies on it, it. It falls to us to deal with our own anger where I have to be able to say, John, okay, dude, you're getting a little bit upset, getting a little heated, take a deep breath. What's going on here? What's, what's the story I'm telling myself? Cause interpretation is a big part of this interpretation as, you know, did Johnny just purposely screw with me or was that an accident? 
Was it, you know, mm-hmm. intention is a big part of this. And I think we make these automatic interpretations and they happen lightning fast where, you know, I'm like, he's screwing with me on purpose. He did that on purpose. And that's definitely going to lead to more anger. Um, so that's kind of a short version, short answer to your do question, you, short, long answer. <laughs> do you think part of that automatic interpretation is because we hold ourselves to a certain standard of things we would and wouldn't do? And immediately when somebody reacts a certain way, we're like, I would have never done that. So we associate that with our level of standard. I, I think that could be part of it. I, I think the problem with that is we're so damn hypocritical. Yeah, and and yes, we are. you know, I, and I say that with, I mean, a hundred percent conviction, but I also know when I say that I'm hypocritical too. So like we get mad yeah. at other people's hypocrisy. I have to remind myself, hold, wait, hold on. Like, I remember I was, um, I was looking to join in a church, a community church, and, uh, I, I'm not real big on organized religion, but I do consider myself spiritual. Like I believe in higher power. And I was talking to this guy who was a member of the church and he's like, you know, yeah, you should come in and join us. Like, you know, there's always room. And I said, yeah, you know, I I just, I I got a problem with the hypocrisy of churchgoers, you know, like pastors sleeping with people in the congregation or, you know, people who are abusing their kids, but looking like good Christians. And without missing a beat, he was like, yeah, there's always room for one more. (laughs) And I was like, touche. That's a damn good point. Because we're mm-hmm. none of us are internally consistent and we're all hypocrites. And, and I think so that it kind of comes back to that idea, to your point of really trying to be non-judgmental. I don't know that I'm ever going to get to a point where I'm like a Tibetan Buddhist monk and I'm completely non-judgmental, but I'm also living in civilization. And, and mm-hmm. so I think it's a constant struggle. I think it's a really good goal to shoot for knowing full well that I'm never going to be a hundred percent non-judgmental. I'm just trying to remind myself as frequently as possible. Hey man, you really don't know what they've gone through in the past. So you really have no room to judge them. Mm, Yeah. And I think that there's that, there's that point for us to understand that I guess the acceptance, right. Of, of that we are fallible, that we do have inconsistencies And I know that's part of kind of where you take your messaging is that understanding that we aren't perfect. We are in fact imperfect, but that's part of the human existence, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like the idea. I remember Emily Dixonson had a poem where she was talking about, you know, the two fiefdoms or the fiefdoms in our head and they're at war with each other. And and I think Mm -hmm. that's a really good description and it, it maps onto what neuroscience has shown us that, you know, there's all these impulses and thoughts and feelings kind of swirling around in our heads. And then at the last minute, the prefrontal cortex says, I'm going to focus on you. And then that's what you mm. say, or that's what you do, or that's what you feel. And I like the idea that there's, there's a number of me's within me. Like, I don't think that there's just one me anymore. I think there's, you know, the five-year-old me and me, there's like, and that's kind of the petulant, pissy, crying afraid me. And then there's like the 15 year old me, which is kind of the, the teenager that's pissed off and rebellious. And then there's the functional adult me. And that's the one, <laughs> the voice that I'm trying to tap into most often, although I'm not hundred percent successful, but you know, I like, there are times, like, I think when we were doing the interview from my podcast, you were talking about self-compassion and learning to speak to yourself with kindness. And one of the things I'll do is I'll actually envision my functional adult in my head talking to that five-year-old that's, you know, maybe pissed off or frightened or throwing a little tantrum. 
And, and it sounds something like this, like, dude, dude, like, relax. You're okay. I got you. You're safe. Take a deep breath. You're going to be mm. fine. And, and that is fascinating to me because I never would have done that 20 years ago. Yeah. But it works. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's a powerful, powerful tool and a nugget that I hope all guys listening right now really drop into what Dr. John is saying, because I feel like that's incredibly helpful to envision ourselves as multiple versions within our lives and to be able to resonate with which one is coming out and which one needs to be speaking. And yeah. I think that's incredibly, it, it's, it, it changes the game because you aren't just one version of yourself. You, you have all these different versions and different seasons of your life that are impacting the way that you react to situations, the judgments that you have, the automatic, um, the automatic assessments you're giving of people's transgressions. I'm putting this up in quotes, transgressions yeah. against you, which spark those emotions. So I love that you brought that out, but yeah, everybody listening, I, I would challenge you guys to really tap into what Dr. John's saying and envision yourself at these different times in your life that you can remember and using that as a tool to help you. And Johnny, you were asking about tools for anger. Uh, earlier. And let me, I, I just thought of these times, oh my God, the neurons just connected. They just fired together. So I have a memory. Okay, cool. Um, it's getting harder as I get older. Um, so one of the best things I tell clients and one of the best things that's worked for me, and I've had like testimonials from people taking my anger management class, like, oh my God, like this is like the secret sauce. So there's this type of meditation called loving kindness meditation. And just quickly, it looks like, you know, think of someone that loves you very much, wish kind thoughts upon them. May you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live life with ease and well-being. It's also called metta. But then you, you know, think of the two of you together, wish kind thoughts upon the two of you, think of yourself alone, wish kind thoughts upon you, and then it can kind of broaden and goes out to kind of encompass the whole world. You don't need to know all mm. that, but know that there's great research behind this to prove the worth of a practice that's been around for 2,500 years. But the, the tool for anger is if someone's coming at you in anger, or if someone's angering you, one of the best tools that I know of is to wish loving kindness thoughts upon them. So let me give you, let me paint you a picture. So I, I got divorced mm. 2010 to 2013, and it was ugly. It didn't need to be. Um, but my ex-wife, you know, decided to litigate when we kind of agreed that we wouldn't do that. And then there was a lot of dishonesty. So I remember being in the courtroom, you know, my ex-wife's on the stand. And in my opinion, she was telling the judge a lot of untruths. And I am in a position where I cannot show any anger. And there's never been a more anger-inducing situation for me in my life. And what I did is I just sat there and I focused on my breath and I just wished kind thoughts upon her. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live life with ease and well-being. And then I usually would throw a dig in like, you know, may you learn to be honest. And I don't know if it does anything for her, but it sure as hell does something for me. It brings my physiology down. It slows my heart rate, it deepens my breathing, and it relaxes my muscle tension. And I can't, I mean, I've had doctors tell me, yeah, I've been doing Zoom calls with, with patients. And like, I had this one patient that was really pissed about something. And I did that practice 
And he actually picked up on my calmness and he calmed down. Mm. But I, I mean, I think one of the goals there is to realize that if, if you and I are in a disagreement and we get start to get heated and we're yelling at each other, I'm not listening to anything you have to say. And you're not listening to anything I have to say. You're just trying to get your ideas into me to convince me how right you are and vice versa. So to yeah. me, the, the yelling at each other in disagreements is completely ineffective. Yeah. We're just trying to get heard, but the other person's not listening. So what can we do differently? Yeah. How can we keep ourselves calm in the face of someone getting angry at us? And that, that's a really mm -hmm. tall bar. It's a high bar, but I, I think it's a worthwhile goal to shoot for. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a high bar because I feel like, just like you said, when you became more calm, it permeated out to the energy of the other person that was there with you. And it's the same thing, vice versa. When we rise in energetic output of anger, it's going to influence the other person to rise in energetic output of right. anger. And one of the things that my wife and I do is, and we've talked about it numerous times is when she has a moment of elevated emotions, it's important for me to not meet her at that level. So it's important for me to maintain, you know, if she's at that elevated state for me to not elevate with her and then to expose ourselves to this huge energetic output of whatever right. emotional state she started with. Well, and so that's great. And I, and I love that idea because it's co-regulation, right? And I think there's this idea of, well, you're responsible for your own happiness. Well, yes and no. Like I, I would say that that's not entirely true if you're in a relationship because in a relationship, mm -hmm. we necessarily, I mean, we care more than anything about the person we're in relationship with, which means that our empathy is going to be high, which means we pick up their emotions. And so one of the goals becomes how do we co-regulate each other? Or how do we help you? How do we help each other regulate those uncomfortable emotions? And, you know, the, the other thing I was thinking is sometimes I'll be working with couples and I'm trying to get, you know, one of them or both of them to be less angry. And the funny thing is, if I'm just working with one of the two people, I can get them to be calmer in the face of their partner's anger. But initially, what happens if I haven't worked with their partner, their partner is going to get angrier in response to their calm, because subconsciously, they're trying to bring them up, they're trying to get them to engage in this anger, this disagreement. And interestingly, and I, I didn't realize this until, I don't know, 15 years ago, that some people interpret anger as love. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I love you, I'm passionate and I'm going to let you have it at times. And if I'm not yeah. sharing my anger with you, then I'm not expressing my love. And this generally comes from, you know, what was your family like at childhood? Um, but that was kind of a new one for me. I was like, huh, anger is love. I, I wouldn't have gone there. But <laughs> for some people, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I don't really think it's effective. That... I don't think it's the best way, but. No, no, not at all. And I've seen and, and heard that before that there's certain people that will go out and kind of try to spark more emotionally charged, angered situation because they just need that attention because they view that as love or that's their way of showing love. And, and to me, it's incredibly baffling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, but you were saying, you know, embarrassment for men as, you know, inciting anger. And it, one of the things, I mean, every man I've talked to in the past hates to be embarrassed. And it's an yeah. interesting question yeah. to me because it's like, why, 
what is it about embarrassment that's so bothersome to you that you fly into a rage if you slip on a banana peel and fall on your ass? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's that we don't like to be laughed at. I think it takes us back to our childhood, right? Where, you know, we were man boxed and, sure. you know, stop being a pussy, don't be a bitch, all that stuff. Um, but I, I've talked to my clients. I'm like, you know, I really want to encourage you to play around with embarrassment, to be curious about it and to see if you can get more comfortable with it because it's not really that big of a deal. It's 30 seconds, your cheeks get red, you violated a social norm what's the big fucking deal? Like, yeah. and, and so I, I really think that the more comfortable we can get with embarrassment, that the, the less seriously we can take ourselves, that the more we can cultivate that ability to be quick and easy to smile and laugh, particularly at ourselves, the easier our life is, the more enjoyable our life is. Ah, and what's really funny about embarrassment is as I've gotten older and I've gotten to this own, you know, development on myself, I've realized that when I see something embarrassing happen to somebody, I like, I'm like, oh man, that really sucks. And then I'm, I'm not thinking about that afterwards. And, and I just acknowledge that that sucks for that person. And, but when we're in the moment of embarrassment, we think everybody's thinking about it in perpetuity. And it's like, no, man, like people saw it. They either were like, they may have laughed, but then they're like, oh man, that would really suck if it's me. And then they moved on. But we're thinking like, oh my God, this is sticking in everybody's head. This is never going away. We make that story up. So I really like that conversation on embarrassment, but I want to, I want to take us down a couple of different paths as well, because I I really want to hear your your input on this. One of the things you talked about um, was how you had a panic attack early on. It was the first time you did. And when you had that panic attack, I want to ask, do you remember kind of how that made you feel as a man having a panic attack? Right. Cause like for a guy, like that's like a no, no. Oh yeah. Well, especially a depression panic attack. I mean, almost any emotion, pretty much. I think we can feel shame and embarrassment and I shouldn't feel this way. And I'm a pussy Mm -hmm. and, you know, man up. And, and I've talked to hundreds of men about this as well. And so for me, yeah, all those things felt true that I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should be able to handle it, man up. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't, here's the thing that I discovered. You can't outthink your way from emotion. And, and I think mm. that, you know, in general, anxiety is often caused by suppressing many emotions over the years. And then it kind of comes up at a point where you just can't handle it anymore. Same as anger. I mean, little drops of resentment, annoyance, frustration, you, you stuff it down, stuff it down, ignore it, compartmentalize. And then that bucket of negative emotions gets full and you get one more drop of one more drop of annoyance and then you blow your lid. And usually at the wrong person, wrong degree, wrong time, wrong manner. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, yeah, I mean, even like thinking back, like I would get depressed at, you know, like as a teenager and I was like, I shouldn't feel this way. I can't feel this way. Like this isn't what a guy is supposed to feel. And yet there it was staring me smack in the face. And, you know, I used to think when I was a kid, like middle school, and when I was in middle school, if I could have just ripped the emotions out of me and left them in the gutter, I gladly would have done that. I mean, you know, my hero was Mr. Spock or, you know, Data on Star Trek, right? (laughs) Which isn't what we want, by the way, and it's not even doable. But at the time, I'm 12, I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to be. Because my emotions would betray me and embarrass me, humiliate me. Um, 
Mm. And um, so, yeah, I think that even any, any negative, uncomfortable emotion that I felt growing up made me feel like I was the only guy that felt this way, that I was a fish out of water, that I was somehow different, um, that I was somehow defective. Because mm-hmm. all of us, all of us guys are trying to put the mask on and be stoic because that's how we're socialized to be. Don't feel. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, you know, I tried, I remember I was in middle school and I, you know, I was a pretty good smart ass back then. I, I stopped after a bit, but um, <laughs> I, I remember saying something stupid, you know, I was being a smart ass standing in a group of friends and the, I was in sixth grade and the eighth grade bully walks up and punches me in the stomach, like sucker punches me. And I'm like, which was a weird experience because in that moment, the world changed for me. Like it became, it went from safe to dangerous. It went from people can oh, be wow. trusted to people will hurt me. Um, but I remember I started crying and I couldn't get a hold of myself. So I'm like 11 mm. and I got so pissed at my emotions for making me embarrassed that I was like, screw it. I'm just going to be cool from now on. I'm just putting the mask on. And, you know, wow. I think I did that for a couple of years and then I realized eh, this probably isn't the best way to go, but I, every man I've ever talked to, that's our first strategy is deny and suppress. <laughs> and yet at some point that shit catches up with us. And we can't, that, that strategy becomes no longer effective. And I would say usually it's when we get into a relationship with a romantic partner, because, you know, it, it fascinates me that women's expectations of a romantic partner have evolved dramatically over the past 50 plus years that, you know, it, it used to be in marriage. It was enough to be a, like a good provider that marriage beca- was a financial arrangement. And yeah. when in the seventies, when women got access to the pill and were more in the workforce, so they got their own money, their expectations changed. So now they slowly began to want a romantic partner that was sympathetic, that was empathetic, that was a good listener, that was emotionally aware, that could listen, um, mm-hmm. that was a good communicator. And we, as men, were never socialized in that direction. And, mm-hmm. you know, women right now are, are initiating 72% or 75% of the divorces in the US. And the biggest complaint wow. I hear from them is I can't connect with my man. Well, mm-hmm. no shit. Like that makes complete sense to me. And I mean, cause we've never wanted to go in the direction of becoming more emotionally aware, becoming more communicative, being better in relationship because once or twice in the past, we were mocked or humiliated for it. And we're like, screw that. I'm not going there again. And if we don't get better at communication and emotional awareness at emotional granularity, I really believe we're going to be in for some hard times. I think that, Mm. you know, I don't know. And that's one of the reasons why I reluctantly began my podcast was I believe that men need help. I believe men need to learn how to be better in relationship, how to be better in relationship to themselves, to their kids, to their spouses, to their employees, that without that, we're going to be in big trouble. And I think we're seeing that to some extent play out in the emotional 
lack of awareness that is so rampant in our country in this day and age that, you know, it's so easy for us to get angry at the other, whoever the other is, and blame all of our troubles on them because I don't have to take any responsibility when I do that. Yep. And that is not a productive or effective way to go about life. No, absolutely not. It's playing the victim. But one of the things you also talked about that I, that I love and I want to tap into as we're kind of winding down here was you've, and you kind of alluded to it in, in, in what you were just talking about, but this socialization of the current man box that we've been given, how is this impacting men in becoming that evolved caveman, if you will, but into becoming that evolution of masculinity? Well, I, I think part of it ties to anger. Part of it is, you know, the man box rules, the, the man box culture is how we're socialized as boys and what we believe about what it means to be a man. And it starts very young, it starts in preschool. You know, Bobby has a crush on Sally. He's in a group of friends, male friends. One of the male friends, um, probably who has an alpha dad, I don't know. But, you know, one of the Bobby's friends is like, well, you know, stop being such a girl. And so it, it starts, it starts very young and then it evolves. So you think middle school, high school, and, you know, if we show too much sadness or fear in front of friends or publicly someone, and it, it doesn't take many times is my conclusion, but someone can say something like, dude, mm -hmm. stop being such a pussy. Don't be a little bitch. Don't be a little girl. And you're like, shit, I'm not showing that side of me again. Cause that's embarrassing. It's humiliating. I'm going to bury that. And then on the other side, you got, you know, if you show too much romanticism or joy or love, or, you know, if you're pussy whipped or um, it's a conversation I had yesterday. Um, but if it, it's joy, love, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, God forbid, someone will say someone like, dude, don't be such a fag. Don't be so gay. And I, I apologize for the, the slurs, but that's what we get growing up. And yeah, I think we have absolutely. to talk about this stuff because again, if you get that, and I think maybe one, two, three times, you just jump back in the man box and you're like, I'm not showing that shit again. And so what are we left with yep. that we can publicly display without fear of humiliation? I would say it's three things. Lust. She's so hot. I do her stress. Cause if I tell you, Johnny, I'm so stressed, then I'm implying I'm busy or important or both. But the big one is anger, some degree of anger. Mm -hmm. And so most of our emotions get funneled through that anger lens and that anger keeps us locked into place. It keeps us from growing because if I'm, if my signature emotion is anger and I'm externalizing blame for all the shit that's going wrong in my life, why do I need to look at myself and change anything? If mm -hmm. they would just all stop doing whatever they're doing, I'd be fine. And so mm -hmm. it completely sloughs off personal re responsibility and it, it's a real problem. And, and that's why it's interesting to me because I think that anger is so closely linked to man box culture, to how we're responding to problems in the world. And I think that, you know, self-awareness and emotional awareness is kind of one of the early steps that we need to grow and evolve to get back onto a better path. Mm, absolutely. Brother. And, and, and I, I think you, yeah. you don't, you don't need to be less masculine to do that. Like you can still, I think it's context specific, right? I've had guys be like, well, you're arguing for the wussification of men. Like, well, no, you haven't been listening. 
What I'm arguing for yeah. is bringing a different set of skills to different contexts based on what serves your needs and the needs of those around you best. So in other words, yeah. if you want to be a badass and do special ops, yeah, you're probably going to have to tap into a lot of that man box, those man box rules. I have no problem with that. You're going to have to compartmentalize. You're going to have to be stoic. You're going to have to be tough and be badass and be physical and be aggressive. No problem with that. If you're going to play rugby, same thing. You're going to play football, same thing. But if you're going to go out on date night with your wife, those skills do not apply here. They are not serving mm. you here. And if you have a four-year-old daughter who falls and skins her knee, like you need to be nurturing and warm and tender and soft and caring. And, and so it's about, you know, the ability to shift gears to bring the best parts of you to any situation. Mm -hmm. I love that. That is a beautiful perception for all guys to grab onto because it isn't about being one way. And it, this actually goes back to what you talked about is that there's, there's multiple Johns in your psyche that come out. It's not about being one way your whole life. It's about having tools and knowing it's again, emotional intelligence, knowing what tools need to be pulled out in which situation, which makes you adaptable. And mm -hmm. that is really powerful for men today. Dude, I have, I have loved, loved, loved this conversation so much. This has been a great time having you on similar to being on your show. This is just the tip of the iceberg for you, but one of the things I want to tell everybody is everything that uh, I'm going to invite Dr. John to share right now will be in the show notes, but John, where can everybody find you? How can we support you? And what do you have going on right now that we can all tap into and get more of what you're putting out there? Uh, thanks. I mean, I've got the Evolved Caveman podcast. That's on all the major podcast platforms. Um, I've got the evolvedcaveman.com. I've got guide to self.com. Um, right now I'm working on a book, uh, which I think I'm going to call the evolved caveman with some, I don't know, subtitle. <laughs> and it's, it's basically that idea of the man box culture, how we're socialized and how do we evolve beyond it, um, in an, in an attempt to best serve our relationships. Because, you know, I remember positive psychology pointed this out to me and I was kind of pissed for a while. But the importance of relationships in a happy and thriving life. And then I'm like, God, like I got to go out there and be social. Like, seriously, I got to have friends. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, that, and, but it's true, right? Like just even like, think of like the little interactions we have with, I don't know, this, the cashier at the supermarket or the barista at the coffee place, right? Just trying to find a way to engage with them and put a smile on their face. We both win. So even like mm -hmm. from little I don't even know if you call those relationships, but interactions to all the way up to your primary romantic partner, like relationships are a big deal. Mm -hmm. I forgot where I was going Absolutely. with that. I don't know. Oh, that's a, it's a, it, it, I love that. I love it. This numerous studies have pointed that out too, but understanding that being social and actually connecting with people instead of isolation, especially in a, in the way masculinity yeah. is, that's a, that's a beautiful connection to be made. And I, it's so funny because when I get on these podcasts, I feel so good after afterwards being able to connect with whoever's on the other line, because it's yeah. just, it's a great deeper conversation. And, and to add on to what you're saying is to, to really for guys kind of exposing themselves to these more emotional connected 
conversations with people outside of their tiny little circle is to also understand that, that you can, you can, you can actually have deeper conversations than just about the weather and football teams. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. One of the greatest things I think about doing my podcast is that I get to connect with quality men that are on the journey that are trying to evolve as well, like you. And I, I didn't realize that was going to be such a huge benefit for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge benefit for me too. And it's actually led to a lot of great friendships, but brother, Uh I truly appreciate you. This has been a blast. Uh, Before I release you to go back about your day, what does the art of masculinity mean to you? Uh, I I think it means an openness to growth, an openness to learning, an openness to looking at what is masculinity to me and having curiosity about what parts are serving me and what parts maybe aren't serving me so well anymore. Um, So Mm -hmm. I I think it's a nuanced look at what it means to be a good man. Mm. I love that, brother. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your guidance, your wisdom, your vulnerability. I truly appreciate you. And to everybody listening, go check out The Evolved Caveman. It's an amazing podcast. And as always, remember to drop the ego and stay humble. Until next time, guys. Hey guys, if you liked today's episode, then please head over to Apple iTunes and leave a five-star review with some of your most impactful moments that you heard on the show today. It'll only take about 60 to 90 seconds to do, but those seconds are priceless in helping promote the message here at The Art of Masculinity, and I will be forever grateful. I appreciate all of you guys joining in The Art of Masculinity community, and as always, drop the ego and stay humble.